I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Avita Duffy. I'm Jeremy Carl. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so we have a, a great show as usual for you today. Um, the, the four topics we're going to cover. Uh, first, I'm, I'm going to talk about the upcoming um, California v. Florida debate is how I'm going to phrase it. And leaving aside some of the, the 2024 presidential politics, Governor Newsom is going to debate Governor DeSantis um, about, and I think that debate is very relevant to the future of the country. Um, Jeremy is going to talk about how our southern border remains uh, wide open, and it seems the situation is actually deteriorating from a very already very low uh, low point. Um, Josh is going to talk about some new developments in the Biden administration foreign corruption scandal having to do with Iran and, and the Iran deal in, in this moment, and then also some more information uh, going backwards in time in terms of payments to Joe Biden from foreign uh, foreign entities. Uh, and then finally, Vita is going to take us home uh, discussing the Russell Brand case and the, the high-tech aspect of that, the high-tech censorship aspect of that case. So um, with that, I guess I will kick it off here. Um, so there was an announcement this week that Governor uh, Newsom from California is going to debate uh, Governor DeSantis from Florida. This is the um, this is going to happen at the end of November, it looks like. And obviously, there are 2024 implications, and maybe I'll leave it to um, one of one of my co-panelists here to talk about the 2024 implications of this. Obviously, uh, Gavin Newsom's um, veto of the trans kids bill in in California is also an indication that he might be positioning himself potentially to step in if Joe Biden is unwilling or unable uh, due to age to to head the Democratic Party ticket. And then obviously everyone knows, you know, DeSantis has been challenging Trump for the 2024 nomination um, for the Republican Party. But what I think is really um, worth considering about this debate is how much more it might track with the experience of what the average American is going to, you know, what life is going to look like for the average American, depending on which political track we go forward in. And that's why I think that that comparison um, between California and Florida, those really do represent the the agendas of of the left and the right in terms of, of things that actually impact uh, people's lives, whether that's the cost of living, whether that's disorder uh, and crime, whether that's that's about rising inequality between, um, you know, especially and I, I can go on at quite some length about how it's become completely impossible to uh, be a middle-class family in California. And then, of course, on a lot of, of the cultural discussions of the day um, and, and what type of country we want to be, how we think about ourselves. Um, I, I think these, these two states really do represent two opposing paths forward in a way that actually um, is closer to, regardless of who, who sort of is the header um, of each of these two parties, right? Joe Biden has been able to position himself to the average voter as a sort of moderate labor Democrat. That's not how his administration has governed. It's governed very much like California. And similarly, you know, Trump positioned himself as breaking some of the conventions of the Republican Party, but but actually um, his administration governed quite 
sort of typically Reaganite in a certain sense, the actual output of his administration. Um, and so I think that this debate, regardless of whether it, it, you know, either of these two men ends up being at the top of the, their party's ticket, actually do represent the future of the two parties, do represent the future of um, um, these these two routes that America can take. Um, and I think well worth having this California v. Florida battle uh, because in some ways it impacts closer with the actual experience of what it will be like to either be headed by the Democratic Party or by the Republican Party. Um, and that might be a bit of wishful thinking on the latter part because, I mean, Governor DeSantis has uh, anyone who's being honest about the situation, whether they prefer Trump or DeSantis, will admit that uh, Governor DeSantis represents and his his state represents uh, the the conservative agenda nearly perfectly executed, right? Um, which we really haven't had in the past uh, in terms of like let's say our previous standard bearers, um, or even in in other red states like Texas, where there has been this heavily moderate influence and infighting. Um, Governor DeSantis represents kind of, uh, and, and his state now represents the distilled version of actual actual conservative policy in a way that I'm not sure the National Party can live up to. Um, but similarly, Gavin Newsom represents um, a distilled version of, of the Democratic Party agenda in a state where they have had essentially free reign to execute that agenda um, really for decades now. So uh, with that, I guess I'll, I'll turn it over. Feel free to, uh, I don't know if you want to comment on the 2024 implications of this, but I I think this is a really probably more interesting and more substantive debate that I want to see about the future of this country uh, than perhaps the debates tomorrow night, the like presidential debates, or you know if we eventually get Trump v. Biden, like their debates. I feel like this is actually um, impacting issues, issues like education, issues like cost of living, issues like the possibility for the middle class, housing, you know, transit, all kinds of of actual like sort of meat and potatoes issues um, as well as those cultural ones. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to uh, you three to weigh in. Well, I agree that Florida has surpassed Texas as kind of the paradigmatic red state, the model for red state governance, which is why I personally would like to hear Donald Trump and Carrie Lake and others stop bashing it um, and stop trying to retcon gullible voters' history as to what has actually happened here in Florida over the past few years, a history that I can tell because I lived through it and I moved here because of it. I literally moved here because of the policies that were being put into place over the course of the pandemic, over the course of Ron DeSantis' first gubernatorial term. I mean, anyone who purports to be on the right, who can look at what our legislature and our governor accomplished this most recent legislative term that, that concluded in May of this year, if you look at that record and you say that this is anything other than dynamic conservatism at work, then I just don't know what planet you purport to be living on or what universe you purport to be living on. I mean, virtually every issue. I mean, I, I could literally go down the whole bullet point list if you want to, from immigration to education, parents' rights, new college, abortion, and literally everything. I mean, uh, it, it was a truly transformative session. So, you know, I mean, I am personally certainly looking forward to this debate very much as well. Uh, Gavin Newsom also just makes a wonderful foil. I mean, the man is literally kind of straight out of central casting as far as kind of a, you know, a Marvel superhero movie villain. I mean, he literally kind of reminds me of like Magneto from the X-Men movies in some ways. I mean, this guy just he, he is crafted for that villainous role. And he kind of seems to almost relish it in some ways. I, I mean, to kind of get into the 2024 politics stuff of it. 
the real question, right, is like, what is Gavin Newsom actually thinking here? I mean, like, is he actually trying to line himself up to leapfrog Kamala Harris and replace Joe Biden if the Democratic ruling class, the David Ignatiuses of the world, actually succeed in trying to force Biden off the ticket, holding aside the possibility, of course, that he is incapacitated or, God forbid, he actually dies, something like that. And I've I've long been skeptical of that because, again, that would involve, I think, leapfrogging Kamala Harris, who is true, less popular than venereal disease. I mean, she's she's catastrophically unpopular, but she is also a woman of color in a party that prioritizes intersectionality and identity politics. And I think the message that that would send to their black voters who are already pretty demoralized and, and based on the crosstabs and the polling, increasingly looking to vote for the Republican nominee – I'm not sure if they can actually do that. So I, I think Gavin Newsom would want to be the nominee this cycle, but he probably is just trying to line himself up for 2028. But anyway, I, it should be a very exciting and I hope substantive debate. And as a Floridian, I look forward to it. As a Floridian, I also know which side has actually won. I mean, California literally ran out of U-Hauls. They literally ran out of U-Hauls last year for people trying to move out of the state. Florida has had by far the highest population growth in the country. This debate has been settled, but it'll be fun to watch them duke it out anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it is sort of interesting uh, because I do agree with you. Substantively, the debate has been settled. And that's not just because like we happen to be on the right. I mean, as you point out, the U-Haul test is really a, a good test for this. Um, it will be interesting to see how Newsom defends the California record. And he's been reasonably popular in California, but I think kind of outside the country, um, or excuse me, outside that state, he's maybe not uh, as well regarded to the extent that he's known. I do think he's trying to position himself for 2024. I think basically his um, his strategy is like, I'm going to completely salute the flag on Biden so that they don't feel that I'm um, attempting to kind of horn in, even though I think the Biden folks are a little bit concerned. But I do not think, you know, as long as Biden is upright and not under indictment, I do not think he'll make a move. But I think that his play is ultimately to sort of be waiting in the wings under any number of plausible scenarios in which we could see Biden not being in that uh, position. And so I think that's essentially his strategy. Um, I take uh, very well what you're saying, Josh, about uh, the difficulty of leapfrogging. On the other hand, I also take very well what you're saying about the popularity of, of Harris. And I think that um, he may feel like, regardless of how uh, much that's embraced by certain minority voters, um, he may have a real chance if, if Harris falters. And I suspect that that is uh, his strategy there. But again, uh, the substance of this debate um, could be really interesting. I agree that the Florida model has been enormously uh, successful. And I think the fact that that's been covered up in, in our politics to a degree is just a sort of a move to kind of American politics as showmanship rather than it having to do anything uh, to do with substance at all. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll sort of leave it uh, there about what that may say broadly about where America's headed. Yeah, I don't, we have uh, only a minute left, but I'll, I'll just say that, Josh, I'm very jealous of you living in Florida during COVID. I was in Chicago, which has really embraced the Newsom-style politics. Um, I had three of my classmates die on the south side of Chicago because of the soft-on-crime policies. I know people who still live there, most of them Black and Hispanic, ironically, who are really suffering um, from the way that that city is run. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm really interested to see this debate and really to see how they're going to 
to weigh the, the the crime issue because I think that's something that people from all races, ages, socioeconomic statuses are suffering from. Um, on that note, I'm going to kick it back over to Jeremy to talk about the border. Yeah, well, and, and as you noted at the the outset, uh, in as I mean, we've got this is not a new issue, but I think what is different is that we're getting just truly like an utter collapse of anything even resembling rule of law. And again, it had been bad even in the past, but uh, according to at least unofficial sources who are talking to folks, uh, two of the last three or four days, we've had 11,000 border encounters. That's at a pace of 4 million per year. We were already seeing record amounts of illegal immigration under Biden, um, but this is kind of taking it to a next level. You look down at places like Eagle Pass in Texas, uh, again, they're sort of almost out of these dystopian right-wing novels and and, uh, and and movies that you can see from the 70s onward about what a full-scale invasion of the border would look like. I mean, we're now kind of seeing that in real time. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that although I don't know that it's happened yet, or in fact, I know it hasn't, but I don't know what the exact schedule it is, uh, that Elon Musk is talking about going down to Eagle Pass uh, while Joe Biden um, is still uh, not doing so. And I think it just shows kind of what an unserious country we've become in a most fundamental way, because I don't think there's anything more serious than uh, kind of more fundamental to a country than a willingness to defend borders. And the current uh, regime in D.C. Um, led by the Democrats simply has no interest in doing that. In fact, quite the opposite. They're kind of doing these Venezuelan work permits um, even as you have these cities like New York most visibly essentially crying uncle after they've been sanctuary cities for so many years saying, look, we can't we can't deal with these volumes that have been happening already. Um, New York is going to spend something on the order of uh, four billion dollars uh, this year, uh, at least by some estimates, on dealing with this illegal immigration Crisis And by the way, I'm not willing to call them refugees or migrants because the vast majority of these people are, in fact, illegal immigra immigrants, whether or not they're kind of dubiously applying uh, for refugee status, they're economic migrants. Um, uh, even in Montana now, which has uh, not exactly been a haven for uh, immigration of any type, we're beginning to see uh, some of this. And I can't let uh, my own party off the hook here. Uh, the Republican uh, opposition to this has really just sort of been rhetorical. Uh, it's been kind of in name only uh, opposition. I mean, we're talking about doing something. We may do something that is, um, uh, you know, will nominally put some folks on the border or maybe, you know, for for Biden's own self-interest, we'll, we'll stem the flow for a while. But nobody's seriously talking about doing anything like uh, Eisenhower did in the 1950s, where we really had mass deportation. Now, again, I should back off. Trump is talking about doing it, but nobody who is in the government right now is talking about doing it. And we know, uh, although I think Trump did a number of really good things on immigration, that he did not uh, kind of fully implement those those promises uh, when he was in office. So I don't uh, kind of view that uh, as um, dispositive at this point. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you literally have the Biden administration Texas is putting up border wire and the Biden administration is sending folks down to cut this border wire. So, I mean, not only are they are they kind of enabling um, immigration through the, the sort of master of democratic bureaucracy, they have this legal pathways initiative 
with Mexico. And they're basically doing all these things in the deep state, in the bureaucracy, all the sorts of things that the GOP is is just horrible at doing. And they are uh, successfully kind of using these kind of non-laws, non-treaties, but to sort of give a justification for um, expanding into kind of legal pathways, immigration that fundamentally is illegal, and the GOP is not really calling them on it. So they're kind of running wild. And then I think I, I'll kind of close by the fact that a number of people, this, this is kind of, I really don't want a Fed post here on this nice podcast, but I kind of can't resist it to a degree. Um, we've got people, um, not just like Ann Coulter, although she's done it, but even kind of very moderate libertarian-y guys like Joe Lonsdale, a very uh, successful venture capitalist uh, down in Texas, basically saying, this is treason, what's going on. Um, and I agree with them. I think the Joe Biden and Mayorkas are actively engaged in treason. You're hearing that sort of rhetoric tossed uh, around. It's not just a policy difference. So the question is, if we think it's that, you know, what are we willing to do legally, uh, assuming we can get power in 2024, to hold people to account. Uh, I don't think we have a level of seriousness yet to talk about that, but I will kick it over to you guys to discuss how this might play out. Um, well, I have maybe three points to make here. Uh, one is that immigration, not on this podcast, but even on the right, it seems to be like this consistent sleeper issue in politics, even after Donald Trump's success in 2016, putting it at the top of the header, it seems like, I don't know about you guys, but when I, I listen to political commentary, it's always an afterthought when they talk about what voters are thinking about, right? Even though very consistently in some of the more detailed polling, you always see immigration. It's like right after the economy, it's maybe in the two slot, maybe in the three slot. It very rarely drops into the number four slot, which is not something you can say about like a lot of the other issues that move around in importance, meaning it seems like the American people are consistently communicating um, and not just on the right, but like a broader swath of the American people are consistently communicating that this is a problem. And, you know, perhaps now my fellow New Yorkers understand a little bit about why um, that that it, it has been uh, an ongoing, not just, uh, you know, a cultural issue, not just a law and order issue. I mean, it, it's an ongoing, like massive disaster unfolding um, decades in the making with all of the incentives apparently lined up on the side of creating more chaos and making life more expensive and more difficult for American citizens who are dealing with this problem, right? So I, I really think like underestimating the role it's going to play in our politics is not a, a uh, smart move. And similarly, in Europe, Europe is now going back to 2015, 2017, or it looks like it's headed back in that direction in terms of the volume of migrants coming in to Europe. And I suspect we will also see that show up in the pol in the politics of, of the various nations involved. Um, look, Im immigration seems to drive populist politics on the left and the right because there does – and I, I'm, I'm not being conspiratorial about this. There are very obvious reasons why it's so – but it really seems like neither mainstream party has any interest in actually making it stop, like actually bringing some of this chaos to an end, because it would require some things that, um, you know, even the Republican Party has no incentive to do uh, in terms of taking perhaps, you know, heat from the press or some, you know, sad pictures or AOC crying in the uh, in a white white suit down at the border. <laughs> um 
but but also because there are very real incentives for uh, the, the American economy now and business owners and so on. Um, we have been used to having essentially open borders for you know several decades now. Really, I mean, you could argue even since the '80s functionally, um, and. That that is something that the American people have communicated over and over and over again at this point, uh, from from the bump for Ross Perot right onward, uh, that that they are not okay with that situation, and yet there are vanishingly few politicians that seem actually willing to do anything serious about it. I think that there's this there was this misconception in the 2016 election that Trump's you know his his addressing the border saying he's going to build a wall was going to really backfire on him when it came to Hispanics um and then it turned out that that wasn't true at all and that a lot of the Hispanics who are actually American cities who live and the vast majority of them in border states are, are really concerned about the border see how it's it's hurting their communities for and all the reasons that Inez just laid out um and I think that we're what I'm really interested to see is is how that you know continues to trend that way in this election cycle um not just now with Hispanics right and the border and how that's impacting how they're going to vote um in the next election cycle but also with African Americans because like I said I'm I lived in the south side of Chicago for a long time four years and all of the migrants are now being housed in a majority black neighborhood all of the strain on their community um, is is being done in those neighborhoods. And so to see how they're going to react to Joe Biden in this crisis that he's created is really interesting because Democrats do believe that they own Black and Hispanics. And this migration issue might be the thing that starts to trend in the other direction. So I, I'm not sure how much I have to add. I mean, to me, immigration is the most important issue in American politics um, because it is the one issue that affects literally everything. Um, it affects the economy. It affects wages for precarious, low-income workers. It affects national security. It affects culture, assimilation. It affects democracy itself. The left loves to talk about democracy. Well, there's nothing actually more anti-democratic than the various initiatives that blew enclaves like New York City, Chicago, and whatnot are doing to try to get illegal aliens added to the franchise, right? So even the very notion of democracy is implicated by this. And ultimately, it, the question, not to beat a dead horse, but the question is really ultimately one of sovereignty. And that pertains not just to illegal immigration, obviously, a nation by definition cannot be sovereign with an open border. But it also pertains to the question of lowercase r Republican self destiny, who are we as a people? Who do we want to be? I mean, the most fundamental questions in all of politics ultimately boil down to the immigration debate. I just want to add one thing here at the end. You know, there's a lot of talk properly uh, about the actual physical border and the wall or more accurately, the lack thereof. And that's a, that's an important topic. I mean, I've been team build the wall for virtually my entire adult life, but that is not it, that is necessary, but not sufficient to solve the illegal immigration problem specifically. Um, you have to get e-verify into place. You know, back in the day, I think there was a large kind of libertarian kind of chamber of commerce, kind of pro-business, quote unquote, wing of the Republican coalition that would oppose e-verify because they would say it would be onerous on, on businesses. And usually when this gets brought up legislatively, they will have some sort of exemption in place for businesses with fewer than 15, 20, 25 employees or whatever, as long as they can do X, Y, Z things. I mean, you can hash that out in kind of the actual legislative language. But the arguments against E-Verify are ultimately, I think, very, very silly. And there actually is a new bill 
that's been proposed by a number of Republican senators, really, really kind of across the whole spectrum from kind of squishes like Senator Capito of West Virginia to Mitt Romney to kind of MAGA populists like J.D. Vance. Uh, I think Tom Cotton signed on to this, if I'm not mistaken. And this this bill would both raise the minimum wage slightly, not as far as the Democrats want to go, and then index it to inflation, and then also add E-Verify. It's basically kind of an Orrin Cassie kind of tight labor market kind of combination there. Very creative policy, in my opinion. Probably not going to pass, but in my opinion, it probably should. Um, all right, so I will transition to myself. Uh, we will move on to our next topic here. Going to be a bit of a hard transition. So there was a bombshell story that broke earlier this week. I think Semaphore was the outlet that first broke it. And it's it's really wild stuff. Um, I'm still kind of fully kind of processing some of the details myself. Basically, there was a Persian language website that tra- that acquired a lot of emails. The website is, is called Iran International. It's a Persian language television channel headquartered in London that obtained... Lots and lots of emails dating back to the Iranian Foreign Ministry going back to the year 2014. And then this channel, Iran International, shared it with Semaphore. And basically, to kind of cut to the chase here, these emails talk about the formation of a clandestine kind of uh, coalition of of activists, academics, think tankers, researchers called the IEI, the Iran Experts Initiative, which basically existed for the sole and exclusive reason of reaching the the highest echelons of United States foreign policy making within our our Department of State, our Department of Defense, think tanks, and things like that. Ultimately, for the goal, obviously, of affecting U.S. policy vis-a-vis Iran. And that year 2014, of course, is very important here because the Obama administration didn't ultimately culminate the JCPOA, the first iteration of the Iran nuclear deal, until the year after that, until 2015, and the Obama, or excuse me, the Biden administration, which is very much just the third term of the Obama administration, has been trying to do much the same. They're very clearly trying to get the United States back into a nuclear deal. They just shipped off $6 billion for this ridiculous ransom payment to the Iranians to free some hostages there. And, you know, one figure who's at the center of this explosive story is Robert Malley. Now, Robert Malley was someone who was very active in the Obama administration. He was one of, if not the single lead negotiator on the Iran nuclear deal. He has been the Biden administration's front person as well. Well, if you believe these emails, and I have no reason to to think why you wouldn't believe them, Robert Malley has been directly compromised. There are at least three people directly surrounding him who are effectively Iranian foreign ministry assets. And as the case may be, Robert Malley has had his security clearance now suspended for months, going back to earlier this summer. I think they first suspended it in May or June or so. We've never gotten a straight answer from the Biden administration why his security clearance has been revoked. All this is going on, by the way, at the same time that the Biden administration continues, as I just said, with the $6 billion ransom payment to play footsie under the table with Iran while they are very clearly trying to infiltrate our policy. The whole thing is just absolutely bonkers. But the, the broader kind of picture of what is happening to the Biden administration, especially vis-a-vis foreign corruption, doesn't end there, unfortunately, because another story broke this week, which is just as explosive, I would say, possibly even more so, which is the fact that Hunter Biden received a $250,000 wire from a Chinese Communist Party-linked official in the year 2019. That wire payment was directed to his father, Joe Biden's Wilmington, Delaware address. 
This was at a time that Hunter Biden was, if I'm not mistaken, living in California. He wasn't even actually living in Delaware, although his life is a bit chaotic, to put it mildly. So it's not exactly clear where he was receiving um, his mail on, on any given day there. So, I mean, I mean, this obviously gets back to the current impeachment hearings, which are set to commence this week with with Biden foreign, po- Biden foreign policy corruption. So the, the picture of that is painted here. And I, have, I haven't even gone into Ukraine and Burisma and the alleged $5 million payments to both Hunter and Joe Biden from Mykola Zlochevsky, the founder of Burisma, which Chuck Grassley has alleged he saw in a lightly redacted FBI form earlier this summer. The total picture that is painted here is an administration that is just profoundly corrupted. And to kind of just add the cherry on top, and I'll end on this and then throw it open to the group for comments here, the cherry on top is, you know, it's easy to forget that Joe Biden himself is actually also currently under some sort of federal investigation because of his own classified documents retention scandal going back. That story broke in January of this year. Those Bidens were found at the uh, the Penn Global Biden Diplomacy Center or whatever kind of the blob decided to call that particular institution. They found some documents there. They found some documents in his Wilmington, Delaware home. That that group was, or, or that entity was directly Chinese Communist Party affiliated, and apparently that probe is now looking into kind of Obama era security clearances and sources. So it looks like the Democratic Party's foreign policy apparatus and Democratic Party administrations are just leaking like a sieve and highly infiltrated and corrupted. It's pretty explosive stuff. Kind of just curious for everyone's thoughts on all these stories really kind of coming together here. Well, I'd say, uh, you know, I think. This kind of bleeds in a little bit to me and what we just talked about in immigration in that you have what I'd almost call sort of a late stage empire state collapse, where the difference between policy disagreement that is honest, even if it can kind of be rancorous, and just outright co-optation by the interests of foreign governments, or certainly not the national interest, uh, becomes that line becomes very blurred, right? And so they can say, well, you know, we're we're just think tankers, right? We're just saying this stuff. And then you look and it's like, oh no, it's actually the Iranian foreign ministry that's surrounding you. And, um, or, you know, well, we're just being paid by this Chinese linked entity that, but it's not really, you know, kind of treason with the Chinese government. Oh no, turn around and look like, uh, you know, Hunter Biden's getting a $250,000 wire. And so, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's part of a broader um, collapse of, um, a functional state to me that everybody we've kind of reached the looting the treasury stage of empire. We've reached the, the kind of collapse of any sort of serious national interest. And I think, um, you know, obviously it's, it's just another negative signal, unfortunately. Josh, I'm glad that you, you brought up this, this Biden bribery development, because it is, like you said, explosive. Um, Something that you, that you didn't mention that is one of the details in this, we actually know from the Devin Archer testimony that um, one of the people that did the, one of the Chinese nationals that did the wire transfer, the second wire transfer actually um, had Joe Biden write letters of recommendation for his children's um, college applications. We know that he's met with Joe Biden um, for coffee at least once. We know that they've been he's been on speakerphone with Hunter Biden, uh, Jonathan Lee, and Joe Biden, all of them together. Um, so the, the the corruption is deep. And I did a story on it this morning where I just looked at the media coverage this morning. Um, ABC, CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, 
None of them were covering this. Um, it happened yesterday. This should be front page news on all of these publications. And yet they're focusing on Trump. They're focusing on the shutdown, um, uh, some on marijuana uh, legalization. It's every topic other than the giant Biden bribery explosive topic that they should be covering if they were honest journalists. Yeah, worth worth re-emphasizing something that I think both uh, Josh and and um, Vita just highlighted, which is this is more recent. Some of this stuff is more recent, right? The Iran stuff is more recent, um, and I think that's worth uh, emphasizing because I suspect the next place, and we'll find out the next place uh, that the media and the Biden administration. But I repeat myself. Um, will go is to say that this is all old and that it has to do with his VP term, right? Mm -hmm. um, and say like, why are you dredging up, you know, 10 or 15 year old charges, right? Um, but the Iran stuff is this administration. Um, so I, I think it's it's worth emphasizing. Um, but the, the other thing is, I wonder how much this will hurt Biden, I really don't think they can keep it. This is why opening, I guess, hearings in order to do impeachment hearings or whatever is actually, I think, an important move by the Republican Party because it keeps a spotlight which will otherwise immediately dissipate here, uh, particularly given how the DOJ is, quote unquote, resolving uh, the legal issues of Hunter Biden uh, without ever getting into any of the issues that that potentially loop in Joe, right? Um, so... I, I think that, that keeping the spotlight on that, that might be one of the only ways we can do it. And I do wonder that as this knowledge permeates, I mean, there's so many people in the country whose first instinct about Joe Biden is kind of like to loop back to what I said in my segment, is that he's sort of culturally moderate, labor Democrat, and he's a good guy. Whereas they know that, you know, everyone knows who Trump is. Even most of his most ardent supporters would not say, like, would not be shocked to find out that he's, like, corrupt in some minor way. Now, I think they would be shocked to find out he was taking payments from foreign governments if he were doing that. But, but uh, you know, he, his, his image was never that of the squeaky clean guy. In fact, his most important move in 2016, or among many of them, um, was to point out, like, hey, I've been in that house I know that they're all taking money from billionaires. I know how politics works. And I know, and by the way, like I've paid very few taxes my whole life. Why? Because I know how to, to, I've been using this game and now I want to reveal it to you and change it. That was a very powerful message to say, I, I know what the corruption is in, in our government. Um, and because I've been a part of it and he would, instead of that hurting him, it helped him. I think it gave him credibility. Um, but with Biden, his image in most of the country is a very obviously revealable lie. And this is a, a part of it that more, the more of this corruption stuff permeates, even if the details don't, but the more the corruption stuff is covered and permeates and continues to be part of the conversation as much as the media is trying to have it not be, I really do think it damages Biden because there's a lot of people who don't like either one. And, uh, that they're they're basically going with like the the return to normalcy argument that's already tarnished by you know the last three years of of living under the Joe Biden administration that's already a much harder argument to make than it was in in 2020. Um, but I think on, on top of it, if you if some of this this stuff permeates beyond the political class and becomes let's say at least as well known as the Trump mugshot, um, 
I, I think that really will uh, very deeply cripple Biden politically. And uh, with that, I'll go back to Evita to, to close us out before final thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you guys talked about the Russell Brand controversy last week, but I wanted to to rehash it because there's some new developments in the story. So a, a committee chairwoman in the British Parliament sent a letter to Rumble, which is this Canadian based video platform. But they, unlike YouTube, are um, very free speech. They allow everyone who's not allowed on YouTube to be on the app, which has made it really attractive um, to conservatives. I I don't know if Emily's ever talked about this on the show, but the Federalist is actually shadow banned very heavily on YouTube. And so we said, we have to go to Rumble. We don't have a choice. We can't reach anyone here. And so a lot of um, conservatives have have made that call. It's a it's it's a it's a safe space if I'm going to use a liberal word for conservatives. So that so this chairwoman sent a letter to Rumble saying, will you join uh, YouTube in demonetizing Russell Brand and Russell Brand in the wake of all of these allegations and Rumble had I think a, a great response. They said we regard we regarded as a deeply inappropriate and, da- and dangerous that the UK Parliament would attempt to control who was allowed to speak on our platform or to earn a living. But what I what I want to talk to you guys about is is the reason that Rumble is now being targeted because I think it's on purpose. I think that the the elites in in the parliament in the US government at the UN and NATO who all have hands in social media companies, right? Um are doing this as a fighting Russell Brand as a proxy to fight Rumble because they cannot control Rumble. So now they're saying uh tech experts are saying that Rumble, because they won't comply with these UK standards under the online safety bill, that it's actually going to be banned from the country. And that if uh, Rumble executives actually come to Britain, they could be arrested on site. This is something that somebody is saying could happen. The the Sun reported on this. Now, they're a tabloid, so it might not be true. um, But but these are really serious circumstances for Rumble to be in, um, threatening their ability to to exist, even threatening their ability to make money, because now we're seeing advertisers um, pulling pulling ads off of Rumble in in the wake of this news and pressure from people like the parliament um, and and others in in this you know our, our economic ecosphere. So I, I guess I just want to open it up to you guys about the tech censorship that we're facing. Do you agree with me? Is the Russell Brand is Russell Brand being used as a proxy to fight Rumble, um, or am I am I reading too into things? You tell me. I don't know if Russell Brand is being used as a proxy. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why he was selected as a target. And we talked about it last time from more of a different, you know, the non-high-tech perspective. What I do think uh, is correct is simply this this entire build-your-own-company thing or track uh, has not worked repeatedly because of the shape of public government pressure on private media companies along with their own cultural, you know, sort of pre-commitments. But every time there is some small startup that tries to route around, um, right down to even, you know, web hosting services, right? Um, There is this this, uh, joint public-private initiative to try to shut it down. Um, And this is, we've talked about this with Missouri B. Biden also uh, repeatedly on this show. Um, This is actually the shape of how much of how this is working is happening, right? It's it's 
sometimes very explicit. I think in the future, after a few of these these court cases, right, um, it won't be as explicit. It'll be more like Joe Biden's meetings at Cafe Milano, right? Um, it, it'll be less off uh, on the record, and there won't leave as much of a, a paper trail. But nevertheless, there will be heavy communication between government agencies um, and these companies, and and the threat of consequences of of many different types. Um, in, if they do not essentially censor in line with what the agencies want. Now, they're they're just like universities in Title IX, right? They're sort of, a lot of them are happy to comply. Um, but as soon as you have sort of an outlier, and I do think this is why Elon Musk buying Twitter was important, it's because Twitter is an already established social media company. Um, it's a lot harder to kill, although I think they are trying with with the um, we talked about the ADL and uh, a couple weeks ago, and we talked about the advertising problem and the problem with moving to a more subscription model, which I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Rumble is more of a subscription based model. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but um, but I, I I do think like this is this is clearly the the shape of the main battle in terms of of free speech, not just in America but in the West is going to be these kinds of requests. And yeah, good on Rumble for putting it in the public because I, I don't I think there are probably many, many more of these requests flying back and forth between these companies. Um, not only our own government agencies, but also, you know, government agencies of, of, of countries across the West. And we know that these companies are multinational and and uh that that these these sort of requests overlap and, and affect our service here in America. So um the more of this that we can expose now, I think the better. I, uh, again, that Missouri v. Biden case that we've been talking about, I think is is hopeful. And and Josh, um, I know you agree with me and you've, you've spoken about this as well, but um, the, the, it's it's very hopeful in the sense that if, if the U.S. Supreme Court starts to develop an actual constitutional theory that can recognize this as for what it is, which is a, a functional, if not technical, gutting of the First Amendment, I think we'll be in a much, much better place to to fight it and deal with it going forward if our court system can actually recognize the structure of what's going on. Well, Evita, I'm I'm really glad you brought this up. I mean, I think it's a really important issue. Um, you know, I think that absolutely at the end of the day, they're going after Rumble and any even more than X slash Twitter. Um, Rumble is really, you know, forward slash our guy forward slash, uh, you know, for those of you familiar with uh, that online lingo. I mean, I think Elon is sympathetic. Twitter is obviously a significantly or X, you know, more more important uh, social media platform than um, than Rumble. But but Elon has so many different things that he's balancing. He has a lot of relationships and dealings with the government. Um, He's not maybe kind of fully ideologically necessarily, yeah, and, and they're going after him on all of those relationships yeah. to add to this oh. this discussion, which I think fit, fits right in, right? Oh, 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 absolutely, and they are, but but you know he's got a lot of different pressures. Whereas Rumble is really, I mean, it's run by people who are are very broadly on our side. They're seeing it as a threat. There are people who are kind of moving to that platform. They have had a lot of growth. They are getting escape velocity. And I think that that is, it is a threat, even though it's still a very minor player as compared to the Google YouTubes. Uh, but they want to, they want to put a, a stake in the ground to say, uh, you know, to kind of touch back on what um, Ines said. Um, uh, it's not, you can't just build your own thing. It just, it doesn't work. And if by any chance it starts working a little bit, then we're going to crush it like a bug uh, so that we make sure that we still have the power. And I, I hope it's something, this whole issue is something that the right focuses on even more, not just with respect to X and Twitter slash Twitter, 
but with respect to uh, to Rumble and some of these other players that are, I think, important parts of our information ecosystem. So three thoughts. One is I strongly agree with Jeremy that this is an obvious targeting of Rumble. It should be viewed very much in line with the opening of recent investigations into Elon Musk's companies, Tesla, for various kind of immigration fraud. I mean, this is explicit targeting of enemies of the regime. And anyone who has not been living under a rock who has seen what the Biden administration has done to pro-lifers, to the parents back in that infamous October 2021 Merrick Garland memo who were protesting critical race theory at, at school board meetings. I mean, they, they've shown time and time again that they are not only willing, but they are eager to wield government power to punish their enemies. And I always return to my quote that I've said probably a hundred times on this particular podcast, which is when will the right wake up to this new reality and realize that we are in a time of friend enemy politics within the confines of the rule of law. That's an important caveat, obviously. Um, I, also, just, just like another observation here. I mean, how sad that this is what the British government in the year 2023 is doing. I mean, um, you know, I think the NACOM movement is very Anglophilic. Um, you know, we we're named after Edmund Burke, obviously. We uh, we think very highly of the English common law tradition and all that that country and its legal traditions and heritage has has given America and the broader world. Um, I'm certainly an Anglophile myself. I, I I lived in London for three months and all of that, and it's it's just terrible. I mean, it's just so sad that the country that gave the world so much um, when it comes to to constitutional government um, that de that devised so much so much great law that that helped develop doctrines of liberty and substantive justice and this and that that this is where the British government is in the year 2023. How the mighty have truly, truly, truly fallen. And, you know, in retrospect, as, as much as it pains me to say, it really does seem like the Brexit vote in 2016 might have might have just been kind of a a a fleeting kind of burp, an eructation, if you will, a fleeting eructation in a moment of what is otherwise just a very, very steady decline of a once mighty empire. And um, I'll leave on a very, very, very quick note of optimism, which is thank goodness here in the United States. It's gotten bad in big tech, but it's not that bad yet. And I'm happy that Inez flagged what she flagged there because this Missouri versus Biden litigation, I think in particular, which we've covered on the show and I'm sure we'll cover again, I think has really strong potential to kind of actually show the path forward for how the First Amendment can directly apply to much of what the big tech companies are doing when it comes to, quote unquote, abridging free speech, which really is the crux of the First Amendment argument in Missouri versus Biden. Yeah, and with that, let's um let's go ahead and and go for final thoughts, and maybe I'll I'll kick it off to avoid the inevitable uh, blank space when nobody wants to say <laughs> theirs first. Um, so student loan payments restart for the first time in about two and a half years uh, next week. Um, that is going to cause uh the conflagration, a financial conflagration uh, among Americans who. Are, we already have a ton of data that uh, credit card debt is building. People are are now living on credit between inflation and all of the other costs. Um, pandemic era programs and and um, benefits are exp are expiring or have expired in the last six months, right? Um, and we're we're headed towards. If you add this, we're headed towards a kind of consumer crisis. I think uh, on top in in, in the economy. Um, 
And then on the, on the issue of student loans themselves, I think that this is a crucial opportunity for the right. Um, I find myself skeptical that the right will take such a crucial opportunity, but uh, you know, given how we've been disappointed so many times in the past, uh, but I, I nevertheless um, want to emphasize this is a big opportunity for the right to propose something that actually breaks this standoff between the injustice of bailing out uh, student loans on the backs of people who did not take them or who paid them off. Um, we we ought to propose, and I, uh, IWF, we have proposed, uh, I have a, a policy backgrounder um, at IWF proposing that we raise the funds for a student bailout, uh, which and I, I will say in a moment why I think it's completely necessary, uh, raise the funds for a student bailout from universities themselves. Uh, in other words, tax universities to pay for a debt jubilee for students. Uh, first, because it's just uh, because the universities, if in, in any other system, if we had a service that was advertised to every 18-year-old uh, graduates high school in America um, that sold them perhaps a six up to a six-figure debt um, for signing on the bottom line in, at 18 and had produced the kind of results in terms of uh, the value proposition, we would call it predatory lending. Um, so the first is the justice of that. Second, the, the universities have benefited. This is not a free market. The universities have benefited from government programs and student loans uh, for decades now. It's part of what has fueled a huge, for example, construction boom um, in, in the university industry. It's why we have such a big university sector to begin with. Um, there are many more universities in the business uh, than, than uh, other comparable countries per capita in the United States. That's part of the reason. Um, and they have sold a product that is not worth the price tag. Um, and they have been able to do that because of taxpayer largesse uh, for, for many decades. And finally, because this is unavoidable, um, before we don't actually know what's going to happen next week when these payments restart. But before the pandemic in 2019, uh, something around just under half of these loans were expected to go into default by 2023, right? And that was before the pandemic and before all of this happened and before people got used to building their budgets without their student loan payments. Um, so, and, and the Department of Education owns 93% of those loans. We own those loans already. There will be a functional bailout whether we pass one or not. And the, the question is what the structure of that bailout is going to be, um, what political party is going to benefit from solving this problem, um, what the consequences going forward for college costs are going to be. And in my view, the left the left's bailout plans make all of that worse. They will functionally move us towards paying for university in perpetuity, endlessly more money in university, and then bailing out students on the back end, functionally giving us you know nationalized university system just with inflationary costs in a way that the nationalized uh, European um, nation systems are, are don't come with that additional benefit of inflationary costs. Um, so I, I think this is, a, again, a huge opportunity for the right to stand in to, as Josh would say, to punish, reward our friends, punish our enemies, and and put forward uh, a, some, a plan that actually solves a problem, a very serious problem for millions of Americans without uh, doing it the way that the left wants to do, which is by rewarding their friends and punishing their enemies. And with that, uh, final thoughts, anyone? Yeah, I'll, ho I'll hop in here. So I have two kind of other foreign policy things that I think are worth noting, and they're from a similar-ish region of the world, I guess. So that's how I'll make this connection here. Uh, last week was a very, very interesting week 
for Middle East followers, especially for those who follow the Abraham Accords and have been curious to see whether the Biden administration will continue the circle of peace that was the Abraham Accords between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. And I say it was interesting because Brett Bayer of Fox News flew to Saudi Arabia for this very, very interesting interview with the highly precocious and young crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. You know, his father is technically king. He's really the one who's calling the shots there. And he was very optimistic about the chances of peace in the not so distant future with Israel. He said that they're getting closer every day. And notably, he did not even make any explicit demands when it comes to Palestinian territorial concessions. He did not explicitly call for a Palestinian state, which was Saudi policy effectively going back to 1948, Israel's independence. So he did not explicitly double down on calling for that. And it was really just a very positive interview overall. And then uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu used a large swaths of his UN General Assembly addressed, kind of saying the very same thing. So it, uh, apparently the the timeline that everyone is saying is that this this has to happen over the next two to three months before it becomes too late. Um, you know, never, I, I mean, never trust the Biden administration not to drop the ball when they're on the one yard line. So, I mean, yeah, definitely don't count your chickens before they hatch here. And it, it is worth noting that the Saudis are definitely demanding allegedly some um, some debatable things such as mutual defense treaties, such as their own civilian nuclear program. We have not seen confirmation of this. That's just kind of the scuttlebutt for the past few months. So, you know, I think reasonable minds can disagree as to whether or not those, thing, those things are a good idea, but certainly it would be a monumental achievement for the most important Arab country in the world to finally make peace with Israel after all these years. Finally, I do want to say a quick word as well about another situation in that rough part of the world, which is happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, the disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I was actually just there on the ground in Armenia with a Philos Project delegation in June. We went out to the Armenian countryside one after afternoon and were very, very close to Nagorno-Karabakh, to the Azeri border. We, you could actually, with binoculars where I was standing, you could literally look into the distance on the hilltops and see Azeri troops there. And that conflict tragically has gotten very hot yet again over the past week, week and a half or so. It's very difficult to get reliable information, but at least dozens, possibly hundreds of people have died. There has been a huge um, a, a outflow of ethnic Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh into Armenia proper. Uh, prior to this latest Azeri incursion, there were roughly 120,000 people, effectively all of whom are ethnic Armenian Christians, living in Nagorno-Karabakh, and now that Azerbaijan is is looking like they're going to fully annex it, they're basically fleeing to Armenia proper. You know, Russia, quote-unquote, brokered a, a peace or, or a ceasefire or something. Obviously, this is Russia, so, who, you know, who the heck knows what actually happened. Uh, I, basically, what I'm trying to say is, as always, the facts on the ground when it comes to this part of the world are very difficult to discern. But I, I, I think it is worth emphasizing that this would be a very good time I think for American Christians and European Christians, really to the extent that European Christians are a viable movement at all, to start sounding the alarm over what is possibly kind of um, you know building up to be all-out ethnic cleansing, if not quasi-genocide, frankly, in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's a very difficult situation because Azerbaijan, for kind of crass rail policy reasons, happens to be an important country for many European and North American countries. They have oil assets. They are viewed as kind of an anti-Iranian deterrent. So it's complicated stuff for sure. 
But now would be a good time, I think, for American Christians really to start speaking up and, and trying, if nothing else, to prevent more ethnic cleansing in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, I'll just have some really brief things, uh, just kind of trying to summarize what I think maybe a common thread running through uh, some of our conversations today, which is um, I think a lot of people, maybe not on this show, but just in general, uh, maybe in some of our listeners, um, don't want to deal with the fact that so many things we see in the United States right now are different symptoms of the same underlying late stage regime collapse, you know, late, late stage legitimacy crisis in this country um, that we don't really have, increasingly we don't have politics that are functioning as normal politics, where even though you have heated disagreements, there's agreements on kind of the overall legitimacy of the system. You have basic things that are breaking down that should never break down. Uh, I haven't received my mail in several days, you know, just like trivial things like that because the post office simply can't supply it. And, you know, I don't live, I live in Montana, but I don't live out on a ranch in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so we just have basic things that are um, becoming non-functional in this country. And I think, you know, you look at that, you look at 33 trillion in debt uh, and how much that's grown over just a little bit and the kind of farcical politics of pretending that we can, you know, borrow a bunch more money from the Chinese to give to the Ukrainians under this type of uh, environment. Uh, you know, we're looking at a future that, you know, I'm, I'm sad to say, um, I think in the medium term, at least is going to look, uh, likely very ugly in ways that we can't really anticipate, but that we can just say, wow, it's, it's not going to be good. And, uh, I, I just think the right has to prepare for that, um, and what that's going to look like, um, and make sure that we are, are ready to protect, ourselves and our interests in this world of, of friend-enemy uh, that Josh is uh, discussing. I I saw a really interesting, I think, useful comparison this week that the, and maybe this is old, you guys can tell me if if I'm saying something that you've already heard about, but this, this comparison that the government is really in, in collaboration with the corporate media is really like an abusive parent or an abusive partner. And that's the way that um, it treats the people. And I think it's a really useful comparison um, for my generation, especially the vast majority of Gen Zers think that have a favorable view of socialism. They want the government in their lives. And that's partly a response to the inflationary economy that we live in. Um, but their their answer to their problems are so bad and so wrong. Um, and I, I, I think that to, to continue to make that comparison is going to be really important. I mean, they gaslight us um, into, you know, thinking that things aren't true when they are they said you know the lab leak theory is 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 a uh, you know disinformation it's it's uh, the hunter biden laptop is russian disinformation any person or or narrative that they don't like they say is from an Iranian or Russian bot, um, you know, they they tell us that it's unethical to use platforms like Rumble or like X because they they have this freedom of expression, which is actually dangerous somehow to us. Um, and I think ultimately they they really view the people as extensions of themselves. They don't see us as individuals. They see what can I do to profit off of you? How can I use you? And for that reason, um, they they have to control us. And I I, I think through all of this, we just we talk about the abuse that that they've inflicted on the American people and what really became clear during COVID, we have to keep 
talking about um, because there is a whole generation of young people who think that the government is going to be the answer to our problems and they are abusers in in every sense of the word they are abusers and we have to keep um, making that point. And that closes us out for this week. So on behalf of Josh, Jeremy, Evita, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm Inez Stepman, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad. Mm-hmm.